0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Carl Eric Fisher is an addiction psychiatrist, bioethics scholar, and podcast host of Flourishing After Addiction. He's also a writer and author of the just-released book, The Urge, our history of addiction, which we'll be discussing today. Welcome, Carl.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So... Your book, The Urge, offers a really fascinating dive into the history of culture, politics, art, and science as they relate to addiction. And it also interweaves your own very personal experiences with addiction during your training as an addiction psychiatrist at Columbia. And I have to say, the the book is an eye-opening read, but it's not actually the kind of book that we typically have on a podcast about psychology, Um, But as I was reading it, it occurred to me how often we neglect to spend time understanding the history of various mental illnesses and how costly that really is. And you write, and I'm quoting from your book, understanding addiction in the present requires looking to the past. And I think you can argue the same is true about any kind of mental illness. And so I'm just kind of curious what brought you into the place of realizing how much we've neglected to look at the history of addiction and why it's so very important to overcome this neglect.
2: Yeah, thank you. And first off, thanks so much for having me on your podcast. It's really nice to connect and to get the chance to talk about this in a psychological focus. I've learned so much from the science of psychology and psychologists who often know psychotherapy a lot better than a psychiatrist. So (laughs) I appreciate it. Uh, I really needed the history for myself. That's where I started from. I needed something beyond the already very good information I was getting from science and medicine. And I couldn't have articulated it to you at the time, but I think that I had a sense that there was something culturally contingent about addiction. Uh, when I read about and when I learned about addiction, it seemed like there was this history lurking, um, and I, I had a suspicion that were, there were certain influences and some ideas tacked onto the idea. And indeed, when I when I looked at the history. Uh, One of the best lessons I got as a practitioner, as a clinician, as a scholar, was this notion that all mental disorders are not essential throughout time. They're culturally contingent. What that means is my addiction is not the same as, say, Bill W.'s addiction in the 1930s. It's not the same as the addiction that people were seeing back in, say, Benjamin Rush's day in the 1780s. He wouldn't have even called it addiction. Uh, it's, there, there are things there that are comparable and I could certainly identify personally with people in the past, but there's also this layer of cultural and social understanding that was really useful to, to see sort of prismatically reflected through all these different time periods.
1: Yeah. And I think that that's something that we don't often think about is just how how culture really influences what we Call an addiction what we call an illness. And one example is homosexuality, right? At one mm. point, we called that a mental disorder. And I think you make this important argument in your book that what we call addiction has some normalcy, right? It, people using substances uh, has been a truth throughout human history. And One of the threads throughout your book is that we understand addiction to be different than mental health disorders. So this kind of gets to the cultural understanding that we have of what addiction is and what it isn't. And so I was wondering if you could speak to this question of why it's so problematic to treat addiction so differently than mental health disorders.
2: Yeah, thank you for asking. It's such an important question because like the water I was swimming in, I didn't even perceive it as an odd thing to be doing back when I was training. And I think many of us in the mental health professions have this experience that it's just intuitive that people with general mental disorders get treated over here, and there's this totally separate clinic for addiction down the street. And it's really dangerous. It's really harmful. And it's actually a legacy of the medical profession's wholesale abandonment of people with addiction multiple times throughout history, but most recently in, say, the 1920s, 1930s. The American Medical Association, following largely xenophobic and racist panics of the time, came out and said that addiction was not a disorder. It was just bad behavior. It was a vice. And we're still living with that today. We still have that separation. And one of the most urgent needs in mental health care is to mainstream addiction, meaning if somebody goes to the emergency room with opioid uh, disorder, that they get the opportunity to get treated uh, ideally with buprenorphine right there if they want it, uh, but at the very least to get connected to care. But usually people are just given a little sheet and said, you know, go go somewhere else.
1: Right. And you you give this example of a supervisor earlier in your training who, when you had, I think it was a young man who came and, and there was kind of a dual diagnosis situation of depression, but also some substance use that the supervisor said, you know, we're not equipped to handle that here send him elsewhere. And you write about this response, internal response of, you know, I really could have helped him. He was sort of active. He was showing up. He was ready to do something. And yet we're taught often as mental health providers that addiction should be treated separately.
2: That story really encapsulates a lot about not only my own experience in training, but uh, the way we treat addiction in general. The, The bottom line, like you mentioned, is that this guy was a better patient than I was. (laughs) When I was active, when I was earlier in residency, I was deep in denial and I was refusing care that was offered me and I was trying to do it all by myself because I thought there was something virtuous about that. I thought that um, it meant something about me uh, to do it without treatment, which speaks to one of the deeper challenges of treating people with addiction. And we see this in other mental disorders too, but um, the the sort of volitional denial and hiding and um, the the disorder of a fractured will over time, meaning I might say in somebody's office, I want to stop drinking or I want to stop using this drug, but then my will takes on a totally different flavor on Friday and I, I make a totally different uh, choice. So you asked me, do we need specialized training to work with addiction? The answer has to be yes and no.
1: And even from the patient side, I mean, should a patient who is feeling really depressed and also struggling, you know, to manage their alcohol use, should they really look for somebody who only specializes in addiction? Or, or would you recommend just find somebody who's a good provider, who can develop a close relationship with you, who can be open to what you have to share? Uh,
2: y- yes. I, <laughs> the answer is yes. Do something get help. It's hard to find help. And it's hard sometimes to find quality help. Even when you find quality help, it's it's hard to find a fit. And the reason I give that sort of weaselly answer is because I do think we need specialized training to work with people with addiction. Uh, and simultaneously, it has to be mainstreamed. And most general practitioners vastly underestimate Their capacity to work with addiction. So many people I see in private practices around New York and otherwise say, oh, I don't know if I could handle this or I'm concerned about this person's history. And that's fine. I have such total compassion for those views. I don't fault anyone for thinking that way if they think that way. Uh, But people with addiction are not so different. It's one of the key themes of my book. There isn't such an us-them idea. And in fact, that was one of my major barriers to getting care and treatment in the first place. I thought addiction was something so special, so extreme. And especially with the historical examples, I've come to feel like addiction isn't all of us. It really is just one expression of a set of vulnerabilities and a set of tendencies we have for working with our suffering.
1: I, I think that's put so well, and you really do put an important magnifying glass on this sense of addiction as other and how problematic that is both for somebody who's struggling to manage their use, but also in those of us treating. And I do think that the separation of mental health and addiction has has caused kind of like a fear for a lot of practitioners of like, oh, I'm not equipped. I can't. And it, it is this pathologizing way of seeing addiction. And that is a huge part of what I love about your book, that it really does say, you know, this is a part of all of us and we don't need to be afraid of it. Um, and you write a lot about, you know, the criminalization of addiction and the sort of like moral narrative of, of what it means. And, and that is an important reason that we need to look into the history of how we've evolved into an understanding of addiction as so other, as so problematic, as so um, almost untreatable, unless you have some magic potion, which none of us do.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the criminalization of addiction is in many cases deliberate. The, the notion of addiction was wielded like a weapon. Addiction can also be caused by oppression, uh, racism, white supremacy, xenophobia, uh, patriarchy, all those things. It can That can exacerbate addiction. And the notion of addiction itself can be wielded like a weapon, even when there isn't really addiction there. We can pathologize normal drug use and use it as an engine that keeps mass incarceration rolling. And I think it's so important to look very carefully at how the notion of addiction is used in that way. Uh, to to be careful about our assumptions about what it means.
1: Totally, and I wonder if you could even just off the cuff pull out an example of um, a way that addiction has been weaponized in in a way that you know serves either a politician or a corporation.
2: Sure, I'll go with the corporation because I think that's the one that doesn't come to the surface. There's there's such a great expansion in consciousness around the misplaced war on drugs, but. Uh, What most people miss is the way similar ideas are weaponized by powerful corporations wielding asymmetrical market forces to take advantage of us. And the example that comes to mind is the way that uh, alcohol industries have repeatedly throughout history, and when I say history, I mean decades and decades and decades and decades, um, alcohol industries have repeatedly used this notion of putting the problem in the individual to absolve themselves of blame. And whether that is some sort of nascent psychology in the 1930s and 40s, or whether it's genetic research in the 1980s, or whether it's neuroscience today, uh, massive corporations that I call addiction supply industries, the industries that feed off of our natural desires, um, these industries like to use these individualized notions to say, the problem's not in our product, the problem's in the person. There are sick people over there. Most people can use it responsibly. And um, it's a really dangerous notion uh, because it obscures that vast middle ground where most people have some issues with some things, but also most people don't fall all the way off the far end of the spectrum into the kind of addiction that I had.
1: There's actually a couple of different directions that I want to go, but maybe I'll choose this one first, which is that it's pretty clear that politicians and corporations have a particular stake in the game of how to understand addiction. In other words, you know, politicians might sort of vilify it to to provide themselves with a sense of like, I know how to conquer this thing. And corporations might try to sell a substance, but what's maybe more surprising is how scientists can really get entrenched and, and either promote or fight science that emerges. And you give a number of examples that I just thought were really fascinating about how science can almost unwittingly be a part of why we vilify or how we vilify addiction Um, And and one of the examples was this giant study called the RAND Report, and it really provides a fascinating demonstration of what can happen in science when people have started to adopt a particular view, and then we get information that says something different. So I wonder if you can walk through that historical example.
2: Absolutely. Uh, So the RAND Report came out of the RAND think tank, but it was uh, a study based on federal research. And... To properly tell the story, I just have to back up just one or two baby steps that uh, in the 1960s and 1970s, there was this huge groundswell of support for expanding addiction treatment services. And like we were just discussing, it didn't get all the way. (laughs) It didn't quite finish the job of mainstreaming addiction treatment. And in some ways, they were doing a better job in the early 70s of providing federally funded, distributed, low barrier, mostly alcoholism treatment, because that's the thing that was more palatable then. So after a few years, all of the data were collected and deposited in Southern California and Rand, And they ran the numbers on what actually happened to people, people who were seeking treatment for alcoholism. And uh, what they found, well, they found a lot. It's a large book-length report. But the upshot was alcoholism is not permanent, meaning people who identified as even really severe alcoholism sometimes got better and sometimes could return safely to moderate drinking. Not everyone. And there have been generations of epidemiological research uh, validating this notion and strengthening this notion, but it's still overlooked because we have such a powerful cultural idea of what addiction is. Um, but you mentioned the backlash. And so when, when the study came out, first it was a little bit leaked, and there were actually some people very active in 12-step recovery advocacy on the board of the RAND Corporation who hated the idea of it. They didn't care what the science was. They didn't care what the methods were. But um, just de facto, on the face of it, they thought, this is dangerous. We can't let this out into the world. And there there was a concerted campaign to the point where there were dueling press conferences and sort of dueling... um, Uh, PR campaigns to try to convince the public on one hand that science is science and this is a real finding. And on the other hand, that uh, we should immediately dismiss these findings right on the face of it. And um, it, it was a really powerful episode, not just because of that individual episode, but because it set off a chain of sort of reactionary advocacy leading all the way up to the point of professors being villainized and almost chased out of the country uh, in order to, to do the kind of alcoholism research that they wanted to do. And to this day, there's certain types of addiction research that aren't really studied in the United States. Um, a great example is harm reduction. Harm reduction research, things like serene service programs or overdose prevention sites, really underfunded in the United States.
1: Can you actually define what is harm reduction? Because I think that actually is a term that very few people have heard of, which is kind of amazing because there's so much science backing up the the value of taking a harm reduction approach.
2: Mm-hmm. My definition of harm reduction is any positive change. And people have written entire books about harm reduction, so there are other views. And I want to shout out Maya Svalovitz, who has written recently A History of Harm Reduction. There are also theorists who talk about harm reduction as a liberatory philosophy, as something that is um, uh, seeking to overthrow entrenched power dynamics and return power to the marginalized and the harmed, especially drug users and people who have suffered from drug addiction. So harm reduction encompasses a vast, vast territory, but the kind of harm reduction I'm talking about in terms of funding is concrete harm reduction practices. And those are interventions that aim to produce any positive change in the health of somebody suffering negative consequences, either from drug use or from the negative consequences of criminalizing drug use, because sometimes uh, people wouldn't have negative consequences if it weren't for the really harsh prohibitionist crackdowns. So examples include syringe service programs where people are provided with clean syringes while also engaged in care or overdose prevention sites which are also known as safe consumption facilities in some resources. Those have existed in other countries since the 1980s, but the United States has only just started to investigate these things now. And uh, there's tremendous research that these things really do save lives without increasing drug use.
1: Yeah. And I think it's amazing. I mean, both the evidence that you can have a substance problem at one point in your life and and sort of age out of it, mature out of it. There's a lot of evidence that it's sort of there's like an age trajectory of, for, of use for a lot of people that you might use, for example, really heavily and unhealthily in college. And that as you reach your 30s and 40s, that use tends to drop off. That's, again, as you're pointing out, not true for everybody, but if you have an addiction at one point in your life, that doesn't mean that you will necessarily have an addiction at another point in your life. And then from the harm reduction point of view, there is some evidence that people who have an addiction at one point can learn to use in moderation in safe ways. And I think what the RAND study shows, and and you talk also about um, this research couple, Mark and Linda Sobel, who are really well known in the addiction field, that they found that you could teach people behavioral techniques to moderate their use. And folks in response to those research findings, you know, really wanted to tamp down because, you know, there was just such a dominant belief that people ca- who have an addiction can't learn to use in moderate more sustainable, healthy ways, which is interesting. I, I think as a, somebody with a scientific background, you know, I always want to believe like science rules the day, but when we believe so strongly, sometimes the findings we, that we should be paying attention to can get pushed under the rug.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, my mind is actually going to uh, earlier scientists who discovered the same thing decades ago. And we're constantly discovering and rediscovering the same elements of care and healing because cultural shifts obscure what's, um, what doesn't fit into our framework. So, for example, Lawrence Kolb was this uh, physician in the 1920s, 1930s. He was active. who was charged by Congress to go out and study opioid addiction. It was a huge problem around that time. And he found that if people were maintained on regular doses of things like morphine, uh, they were functioning really, really well. And that was not a popular study back then in a time of harsh prohibitionist crackdowns. And it was not a popular finding in the time of Mark and Linda Sobel, who were trying to intervene with very severe cases of addiction um, and did show some marginal benefits in, in health. And uh, it's not a popular finding now. We have great current epidemiology that says that there are some people, not everyone, uh, but some people who can really improve their functioning in life without even changing their use at all. And um, we were talking before about how science is socially contingent. And I, I just think it's hard to escape those frameworks as scientists uh, always have to be careful about what sorts of cultural beliefs they're onboarding. Because, you know, for us, for people who are interested in psychology, uh, the, the core ideas about human psychology and human behavior are deeply, deeply shaped by centuries and centuries of theology and philosophy. And you can't think your way out of those biases. They're just they're so deep in us that it, it would be impossible to some, somehow like come up with your own fresh psychology whole cloth.
1: Yeah, I think that's so true. And, and that is why it's so useful to look into the history. And, And you know, we can't undo the biases, but we can deepen our understanding of them. And I think that's where your work comes in so handy. Um Related to that, I wanted to talk a little bit about this really commonly held belief that addiction is a brain disease, right? That there's something very fundamentally biological about it. And the science on that is kind of mixed. So I was hoping that you could share a little bit about that. And and also still, you know, there's this broad question of why we're so hungry to believe that it's a biologically derived and exclusively biologically driven disease.
2: Sure thing. Yeah. The first thing to say is that I think just calling addiction a disease, period, is misleading. So that's even before we get to the notion of brain disease, and perhaps even sort of a, a lower bar than brain disease. But even just to call it a disease, I feel unfairly narrows the scope of addiction. It makes it too individualized, and it overlooks the broader social context and the way that we're all interconnected. Um, But then brain disease takes it a step farther. Brain disease became popular basically in the 1990s when there was a big boom in interest in neuroscience research and people were able to neuroimage the brain in a different way. But the story actually begins earlier because it also coexisted with the crack epidemic and not a lot of people were making the connection at the time, but here's another example of how people have trouble identifying the biases they carry into the scientific endeavor. It, it, it's hard to put ourselves back there, but I grew up in this time. I grew up in North Jersey in the 80s and 90s and I get you know I, I still remember just the pervasive fear and how my parents were so scared of just like going into Manhattan, you know uh, and all of that thinking infused research on addiction because a lot of research on addiction back then was research on crack. And sure enough, crack is a very powerful stimulant. It's really just cocaine. It's not a different drug. It was, it was kind of portrayed as a different drug for the purpose of certain uh, political moves, but it, it's just a, a different form of cocaine. And it, it strongly activates a series of neurotransmitters that powerfully interacts with dopamine. And then dopamine became the sort of central figure in this story about hijacking the brain. And that's the thing that brings us up to brain disease, because by the 1990s, there's very good scientific research describing different brain circuits that were active in crack and other stimulant addiction. On the basis of that, scientists said addiction is a brain disease. Like any other disease, we can locate the problem in the organ, and therefore you should give us more funding for research and you should... Uh, treat people with a disorder more fairly. And I think it did succeed on certain grounds. It wasn't some sort of like, you know, awful criminal campaign. Uh, they, they had real purposes for using that language. But the downside of a brain disease narrative is that it overlooks all of those broader social forces that go into, for example, Uh, the crack epidemic in the 80s and 90s, which was not the function of like some evil drug hijacking people's brains. It was also the function of chronic impoverishment and oppression of the urban poor. It was a function of the, the bad job we had done of building up our addiction treatment infrastructure. And it was a function of economic changes, like the loss of jobs and the opportunity for meaning and purpose among the urban working class. And so to reduce it all to the brain disease story, really, I'm inclined to call it uh, causes us to miss all those other social forces. So maybe it works when you're trying to get an addiction treatment program in your hospital, but um, it comes at a high cost.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: You have a term that's originated by a German brain researcher, Ernst Popel called monocausotaxophilia. taxophilia And it, well, l- l- I'll have you sort of answer what the term means and why it's so important to kind of get in on the joke of this disorder.
2: Yes. Yeah, it's a made-up term that means the love of single causes that explain everything. And we have that in mental health. We have to admit it. But we especially have it in an addiction, uh, people really want villains, especially when uh, substance addiction and other forms of addiction really hurt people. I think we have to acknowledge that too. It hurts, hurts the individuals who are suffering from addiction, but it hurts other people too. People do go out and um, sometimes commit unimaginable uh, damage to service their addiction. Uh, so people are naturally looking for villains. And those villains can be found in a drug company. They could be found in uh, the drug itself. They could be found in some particular set of other social causes. But one of the big surprises from the the book was that uh, drug epidemics are nothing new. We've had drug epidemics for at least 500 years in human history. And every time we've had a drug epidemic, whether it was crack or whether it was the first American opiate epidemic, which was around the time of the Civil War in the mid 19th century, or whether it was when tobacco rushed across Europe and Asia after Columbus returned from the so called New World, uh, people have searched for that single villain and it never really works. Uh, whether it's a prohibitionist crackdown, or whether the pendulum swings to the other end and people are looking for some sort of therapeutic or scientific or supposedly more compassionate response.
1: Yeah. And just one other fascinating anecdote that you share is is the history of cocaine, right? Freud was one of the earliest proponents of it. I actually, after I read your book, I went and looked up his, that paper Uber Coca, I'm Mm -hmm. sure I'm mispronouncing it. It was really fascinating. It's a really fascinating study. It's one of his earliest published papers where he just goes on and on about the, the miraculous properties of cocaine. And he, as you write, was prescribing it also to a friend who had a morphine addiction as a sort of a substitute and a less um, problematic substitute for morphine. Um, but at many points in history, we've identified substances that we think are very, very helpful, and then there's sort of this backlash you know, from morphine to cocaine to sedatives that, are, that these substances are sold as safe, only to backfire in pretty tragic ways. And so one of the questions that I wanted to pose to you is the modern world of managing mental illness prioritizes medication. And as a practicing psychiatrist, how do you approach prescription given your in-depth knowledge of the history?
2: So because addiction and mental health service, other mental health services are so segregated, there's two different answers to that. I think most general medical, general mental health, prescriptions are both o- overprescribed and underprescribed hmm. meaning there are a lot of people who really benefit from life-saving medications antidepressants can be life-saving in some circumstances and also they're they're too often the the tool of first resort and especially because of resource shortages sometimes a harried general practitioner might reach for a prescription pad and write someone an antidepressant rather than, say, connecting with counseling that doesn't exist or social services that don't exist. Um, For addiction, they're mostly under-prescribed. We have great medications that really help people with addiction. And I see this in psychiatry. For general practicing psychiatrists, many people balk at prescribing medications for alcohol use disorder or for even other substance use disorders because they have this idea that it's complex or that it's uniquely challenging, and it's just not. I think that's a great example yeah. of where care could be more mainstreamed and we have an urgent, urgent need uh, to offer at least for the people who want it and for whom it'd be a good fit, the opportunity to say, turn down the the volume on certain cravings or to, to otherwise get, an, um, get access to a tool that can really be life saving in some circumstances.
1: Right. I think that there's this feeling in the field that if somebody has an addiction, that having a prescription will lead them to just, you know, misusing a, another drug. And, and I think what you're saying is that, you know, the evidence doesn't show that that a lot of the medications that we might give to somebody who has an addiction are really, really helpful. And when we don't provide them, we're actually contributing to the suffering.
2: Yes, absolutely. And also, I can understand why people might have that view, because there are so many cases of really um, irresponsible prescribing Again, going back centuries, I mean, there are examples. And this kicked off some really bad prohibitionist uh, legislation back in the early 20th century when opioids were essentially outlawed um, because people would have pill mills and you would go in and pay by the pound for morphine. And we have equivalents of that nowadays. So it is important to be careful about inappropriate prescribing. One of our big blind spots nowadays, I think, is benzodiazepines, things like Xanax, clonopin. Those are probably still prescribed too liberally.
1: Can you actually speak a little bit to that? Because I so this is an interesting because they're so commonly prescribed. So what should a consumer know about those kinds of prescriptions?
2: Sure thing. With with the general caveat, this is not medical advice and just general right. informational purposes. Of course, uh, it, benzodiazepines are really useful sedatives, and they're actually the first treatment that we use for alcohol withdrawal. Alcohol withdrawal can be fatal. Uh, people can get seizures or even die. So. We use benzodiazepines in a lot of clinical settings and hospitals, and then also as an outpatient intervention for anxiety. The problem is, for outpatient anxiety, it can often just become an avoidance mechanism. I know your podcast, you're really into ACT therapy. I love ACT. Um, I love the framework of thinking about avoidance and finding the purpose in your pain and uh, working with pain and accepting pain rather than uh, just trying to manipulate it or control it or exile it in some way. And what benzodiazepines sometimes do is they allow people to just totally eradicate their suffering, totally eradicate their anxiety. And of course I understand why people would want to do that. And that also doesn't mean that everyone should run, off, run out and get off their benzodiazepines too, right? Because not only is there withdrawal, uh, there can be some like real challenging personal growth involved in that. Uh, but I think that that's a subtle kind of psychological risk that's often missed, that people are missing the opportunity to work with their pain, their pain that's trying to show them something worthwhile. And I had something similar with Adderall. I think people's antenna are up a little more about Adderall, but not totally, or amphetamines in general. Uh, and I was using Adderall to medicate like a crushing sense of scarcity and a, a profound need for external validation. Like I really needed to keep on working. If only I wrote enough papers, if only I succeeded enough in my residency, then I would be okay. And, um, that was also a type of avoidance mechanism. It was a way of me avoiding facing up to, you know, the, the deeper feelings that were driving those thoughts that I wouldn't be okay. Just being Carl, just being myself. Uh, so I think it really takes wisdom and discretion with using these medications while at the same time, like we were just talking before, there's tremendous stigma against them too. And some people can really be tremendously helped by them.
1: Yeah. I have a couple of questions about that. So I'm curious in your practice, when you see somebody who's experiencing tremendous amount of anxiety, um, you know, how, how do you approach that? How do you sort of straddle the line between helping them to confront it and not avoid it and sort of use it as information and a, and a point of growth versus sort of dampening it down a little bit so that they can turn towards it because it can be so paralyzing um, mm-hmm. and and not as medical advice. But I'm just kind of curious, like how, how you sort of think about it. How do you approach it? How do you balance that over time in your mm-hmm. treatment?
2: Most people in my practice have a uh, substance use problem history. So Many, not all, but many, have a really deep history of finding refuge in substances to escape from anxiety. And that maybe is a twist on my practice. I don't think it's different in kind. Maybe it's a difference in degree. But people can be really terrified of anxiety. And I see that in myself. I can be really uncomfortable in my own skin. I really don't like discomfort. Um, it sounds almost banal to say it. it's, a, I don't like discomfort, but I, I, I can deal with other forms of suffering. Like, you know, even despair, I don't have that much of a problem with. Sadness and hopelessness about the fate of the world. But when I'm just like anxious and queued up, or even if I've had too much coffee, that can be really uncomfortable for me. And I just say that because I think that uh, not everyone, but a lot of people with an addiction history have that. So uh, I think it has to be approached very gingerly. And I really try to take the principles of harm reduction into that therapeutic practice to meet the person where they are. What are you looking to change? How is this anxiety affecting your life? What is it doing for you? What is the function it's serving for you? I think that anxiety can often be like uh, impulsive addiction. To be volitionally engaged in a worry loop is a way of trying to protect the self sometimes against future problems, to perseverate, to return over and over again to some sort of problem in the hopes that um, maybe a problem gets resolved. But at the very least, you can convince your mind that you're doing something about it. And um, the first step is often recognizing the the role of choice and the, the space between stimulus and response. The worry is not like a thing that's happening to us. It's often something that we're actively engaging in. And, you know, I say that, and as I say it, I'm conscious of the fact that I never want to put my worldview on somebody else, too. So if somebody's not into that, then fine. You know, we'll talk about other ways to to work with it. But I think fundamentally, often, there's this element of um, the relationship to the self and the relationship to suffering that, uh, needs to be approached very, very gingerly and carefully.
1: Yeah. So I love that you approach that gingerly and, and recognize that. And it is very act consistent, right, to sort of you, be curious about the emotions and then re, re-engage with our values and then be willing to experience discomfort. But as you're noting, like that discomfort can be really, really tremendously uh, yeah. uh, Crushing. uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Crushing, yeah. And so to to really sort of acknowledge that at the same time as, as you sort of... Um, you know, try not to enable the, the use of avoidance. Um, and, you know, I am kind of curious. So you, if it's okay for me to kind of get personal with you. Of course, um, yeah,
2: I wrote the whole book. Yeah. <laughs> I put it out well,
1: there. So, so let me start there. I mean, what was it like for you to share some of the more vulnerable, intimate pieces of your journey through addiction and into recovery?
2: I'd be lying if I said it wasn't also crushing and really fearful And I was helped in the process because it felt intuitive to me in the sense that I really wanted this book. This is the book I wanted for myself and I couldn't find. I wanted a general overview and a historical look at the idea of addiction. And there's so many great examples of deep dives into one individual uh, time period, but no one trying to put it all together. And I really wanted that book. And I recognize that it would be totally arrogant and grandiose to say that I'm going to write the definitive book about addiction and tell you how it all is and put it all together from ancient Greece and India to the present day. So it was necessary for me to bring in my personal story, not just to connect it to the the human factors and to to bring back the story to what really mattered, but also to, to disclose my own biases and to say addiction is deeply personal. Addiction depends on who you are, where you were born, the kind of privilege you grew up with, and your inherent cultural values and biases. So I was sort of led in that way. It just felt like the right way to do it. And so I didn't I just try not to think about it too much, frankly. Um, and then once I was down that path, it was really terrifying because I, I spent so much of my life looking for external validation and doing the right things, writing bioethics papers and research papers and getting accolades and rewards within a hierarchical patriarchal system. So to all of a sudden be doing the thing that a lot of more traditional therapists tell you not to do, to self-disclose, uh, to say it's really dangerous, plus add on the natural stigma attached to addiction. It was terrifying. There were moments I thought that, you know, I couldn't, not, not literally, but there was a part of me that thought that I couldn't survive it. Like there, there's something deeply dangerous. I would not be Okay. If I let this out. And, you know, I should say we're recording this right now. It's January 12th. Uh, my book is not out yet. And it, there's still a part of me in there that's terrified. This morning I woke up and I was terrified. I felt this huge yeah. knot in my chest. Like, uh, oh my God, I, you know, how could I have done this? Is there any way to like pull it back? Um, but I can recognize after working with it, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to work with that fear um, because it's no different than the other types of like self-protective fears I've had that like I need to put on a show or act inauthentically or kind of like manipulate myself and my actions to get other people's approval to think that I'm okay. Because yeah. I have more of a sense. I'm not I'm not enlightened floating on a cloud right now, but I, I have more of a sense that I'm okay. I'm okay as I am. There's nothing, you know, deeply awful about me. And if people know the truth about me, it's not going to come back and haunt me in some way. It's okay to show up as I am.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it sounds like you're able to even coach yourself, like it's okay to wake up with that feeling of terror and that knot in your stomach, and to kind of proceed. Um, yeah,
2: I had a therapy session last night, so that helped.
1: <laughs> <laughs> with, I actually I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own therapy, so I hope that that's okay too. Yeah, um, sure thing. So your book is very grounded in science. I mean, you, you sort of do a deep dive into the long history of science and addiction. But one of the things that struck me is that the kind of therapy that you pursued was internal family systems. And you, you write in the book, you know, that you're aware that it's not an evidence-backed treatment, and yet you found a lot of productive help from it. And so I think that's kind of an interesting point from the psychotherapy point of view, that on the one hand, we want to look for treatments that have evidence backing them that we know they work. And yet different things work for different people and science doesn't have the answer for any given person. And so I think that's sort of an interesting general uh, question to be pondering is like, how important is it to only treat people with uh, treatments that we've tested in randomized controlled trials? And how important is it to kind of be open to allowing individuals to explore what works for them?
2: Mm hmm. And what is our yardstick, right? Because when I wrote that, I was thinking I'd be embarrassed to tell one of my supervisors at Columbia that I was going to IFS because it doesn't have the status-based seal of approval. And that's not the right yardstick, just to be totally obviously clear, Uh but I'm with you that I think that evidence-based treatments are really important and it's important to be humble about what we know and what we don't know. For me, I just went to uh, a, a person that I really loved and respected in my Zen center who herself is a therapist. And I said, I need some help. My mother is dying and I, I need help. So you know me, you know my situation. You have a sense of who I am as a person who do you think I should go to? And I left it at that, which is very different from before. When I was in academia and when I was studying this stuff, I would say, I would like read all the books and I would say, hmm, you know, like maybe ADP, but I don't know about this. And like, maybe I'm not a good match for it. And thinking about personalized medicine, what, what is the theoretical underpinning and what can I get behind? And I think there's something to that, you know, I think that, and I really love it when People seeking help and my own patients are seeking information. I think it's good for people to be empowered and to really learn about the modalities. We shouldn't like live behind this veil of secrecy like and opacity about what our techniques are supposed to be. But it was really a relief just to relax and say, just tell me what to do. And letting go. That for me, that for me is really important. And I don't think it's true for everyone, but for me, I really need to let go of the notion that I was running my own show. I would fix it myself. I can get 90% of the way there. And I only needed like a little coach to get me across the way. A big theme in my recovery was acceptance and surrender. And others have written out, and feminist writers have pointed out, for example, in the case of um, the experiences of many women in recovery, that's not the answer for everyone. It's not the answer for traditionally marginalized communities, and there are a lot of people who don't want to say I'm powerless. They instead want to say, like, let me identify what my sources of power are within this awful experience. So I think it's very, it's very individualized. I just had the benefit of um, building a community in recovery that I could draw upon for support, because that's the other piece. It wasn't just me. It wasn't that I went out and got a therapist. In a way, I was throwing myself onto the collective wisdom of my community and saying, this is not this is not a me problem, this is a we problem. Please help me. And that's always been easier for me in my life mm-hmm. than just trying to solve it myself.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting there is that there's so much scientific evidence to support the importance of community, of of having, you know, these social ties, as well as I mean, there, there's strong evidence suggesting that the most important element of successful therapy is a connection with your therapist, that the modality, the the sort of theoretical underpinnings of the therapeutic approach matter, but the most important thing is really feeling connected to the therapist. And I think um, that that it, that is sort of reassuring to know.
2: Yeah, reassuring and humbling that we can go to workshops and we can go away for weekend retreats and study and practice and get supervision, and all that stuff is wonderful. And I, for one, I think we have a moral obligation to go out and do the best we can and try to practice our profession well. And also, for me at least, I can chill out a little bit. I can chill out because if I show up as a whole person and treat the person with respect and decency and really pay attention to their story and their situation, then that's already a long way there. And we all know that um, there are people who... Are unable to give that to their patients for whatever reason. So, you know, what a gift to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, right. Showing up as a as a as a whole human in that room and being you know willing to really connect. I mean, that's sort of like all the way back to Carl Rogers, who was so pivotal in helping us to understand that the most important thing that we can do is just connect to the person that's in the room because they're a person, not just a disorder. You know, set of challenges that need help.
2: Yeah. And it's I I love that line of thinking, and I think it's really well represented in certain branches of psychology today. And it's been so hard to bring it into addiction treatment. It's really been a challenge because addiction exists at this borderland between social control and also health condition. There have been such debates about whether or not it even is a health condition that addiction treatment has so long been tied up in um, coercion and a lot of my addiction treatment experience as a provider was in say criminal justice affiliated programs where people were court mandated or people were there, um, otherwise in, in response to like parole or probation. And, um, it's really hard to escape that. And I I know a lot of people are out there working in those types of environments where people are showing up for treatment because of coercion, even informal coercion, like a, a friend or a family member, a spouse says do this or else I'm gone.
0: Um,
2: And I think all we can do and maybe like the best remedy for working within those systems is is connecting to that insight of showing up as a whole person and unconditional positive regard as much as you can and promoting someone's self-efficacy as far as they can actually exercise it in whatever circumstance they are coming up with.
1: Well, let me ask a follow-up question to that because addiction is so multiply determined. There are so many cultural factors, but there's also within a lot of individuals, a strong element of denial, right? That that can be a really dominant feature for people who are struggling and and not quite ready for treatment. And yet, you know, they're wreaking havoc on their own lives and on the lives of people around them. Um, So you write, you know, and this is another quote from your book, but denial is a profound obstacle to treating addiction of all the people who have a substance use disorder and are not getting help. Fewer than 5% think they need treatment. And yet, you know, coercion isn't the right answer. And so I, you know, my question to you is when you were not yet ready to admit that you had a problem, what do you imagine would have been helpful in sort of opening you up to, to, um, I don't know, admitting that there was something that you needed help with?
2: I just don't know what would have helped me because I got a lot of help. I was treated extremely well within the Columbia residency program. And got a lot of opportunities to receive help. And I don't know how I feel ultimately about coercion in the strict sense. The, the, the informal sense of coercion is it's something harsh and tough and criminal justice affiliated. But we can also talk about coercion simply as a hard choice. Do this or else you will have to deal with the consequences of that. And that's a common feature, even in the most compassionate and scientifically grounded forms of addiction treatment. They talk about that a lot in craft, for example, um, when a family member sometimes has to step back and w- the words they use are, allow the natural consequences of someone's use to progress. And that doesn't mean withdrawing all care and letting them hit, ho- hit rock bottom, far from it. And it really is such a difficult choice. And I've had to do it myself in my own life. Uh, and I've had, I've seen patients and patients' families have to struggle with this and there's no easy answer there. Um, but I say that I don't know how I feel about coercion because I ultimately received coercion, not, not in a harsh way. It was probably the number one absolute best case scenario for the treatment of addiction because I was a privileged white guy at an Ivy league school who is reasonably well connected. I could afford treatment and I was lucky enough to be in a state uh, it's a state of the United States that had a physician health program where I was given the opportunity to get treatment rather than face licensing problems. And that's coercion. It wasn't harsh coercion like someone waving a stick in my face and saying, like, I'll send you to jail. I would say, hey, if you would like to practice, a, a medical license is not, um, it's not a right. It's a privilege. And if you'd like to have that privilege, then you should go ahead and go to treatment. And I am immensely grateful that I had that opportunity. Because I don't know what would have got me into treatment otherwise. And at the same time, the treatment I was coerced to was not evidence-based. And I saw a lot of harmful things in it. A lot of outdated and harmful treatments. And uh, that's often the way it is with contemporary forms of coercion. And um, again, I was very lucky. People in the general criminal justice system are coerced into so-called treatment facilities where their heads are shaved. And they do push-ups in the snow. And that stuff is, that goes back decades and decades to when the medical profession committed its wholesale abandonment of the treatment of people with addiction around the mid-century. And so all of these other sort of kind of random treatment programs sprung up to take their place. So I understand why people are really, really careful about coercion. by and large, coercion probably does more harm than good. And I don't know, I just don't know how we deal with the fact that there are some people with severe addiction who seem to require some form of that more benevolent or that less sort of like moralized form of coercion. That's just a hard choice or allowing the natural consequences to proceed. It's so difficult.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think it's a fine line, but to me, coercion seems different than natural consequences. I mean, I think about this, like from a parenting point of view, you know, you can coerce your (laughs) child to clean their room. (laughs) Or you can say, you know, it's up to you. But if you don't clean your room, then, you know, I'm going to be grumpy, and and that's just a natural consequence because we all live in the same space, and and it pains my eyes to see your room. I, that's sort of a, a silly example, but hopefully the point is made clear. I, I think that there are there are ways to make clear the natural consequences that are compassionate. Uh, And they feel different than coercion that is more um, punitive.
2: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. As a parent, it's such a struggle, and it's also a struggle not to just bribe people with gummy bears. Yeah, (laughs) do do your piano lesson or no gummy bears? Uh, Not the right kind. But I I think you're right that we also we probably need a better word than coercion.
1: Yeah,
2: Uh, you know, in the in the legal and the bioethical literature, we use the word coercion in this very dry way, but it doesn't capture all the nuance and all the varieties of um, those types of hard choices. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it gets back to a, an even deeper question, which is how do we change anybody else's behavior? And right. how do we help people working for change?
1: Right. How do we motivate people to want it for themselves, which is you know, ultimately what we as providers want and what people who are struggling, you know, need to have, they need to have the internal motivation. One, one interesting thing that I think about too, and um, I know we're running out of time, but I come from uh, research in uh, addiction in couples. And one of the findings is that a real important motivator for many individuals with an addiction Uh, to seek treatment is their partner threatening to leave. Whereas if both partners are using the addicted person has a harder time finding the motivation to make any changes. And I think, you know, that can be coercive. I'm going to leave you unless you change. But again, it could be a natural consequence. Like this isn't healthy for me. I can't stay here. I love you. But um, if we're going to stay together, you know, we need to create a healthier household. And to me, those feel different. Um, But again, you know, the line can grow very, very blurry quickly.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it makes me think about acceptance at bottom, that uh, I don't think that addiction really ends. I don't think people are cured. I don't think I'm cured. that, That was one of my big takeaways from looking at the history is that we've routinely returned to this desire to stamp out addiction or to cure addiction, whether it's through some kind of special magical pill that uh, takes away opioid addiction or whether it's through some sort of new mutual help revolution or whether it's through some sort of policy response. And we need all those things. We need to do a better job on all those things on research, clinical care and policy changes because the death toll is immense. We're leaving a lot of lives on the table. And I think we have to recognize that we will not end addiction. That uh, Addiction uh, is not something that we'll see the end of. That it's something to work with and at least my own experience has been my worst kinds of addiction are directly contiguous with all the other things that we were just describing about just like being fearful about external validation or um it's sensitive to rejection or uh, even just worry that's all the same for me and uh there's a lot of for me at least there's a lot of uh relief that comes with just like giving up the the search for the end or the the perfect resolution
1: right right accepting it as a human problem is actually paradoxically empowering and and that's definitely the sense the feeling that your book left me with it's this really in-depth exploration of the history and and you the ultimate conclusion is that this is a human problem that we need to accept and that when we do we're much better positioned to manage it in healthy sustainable ways so it's it's a terrific book um where, where can people go to find out more about you and your work?
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate it. It's been nice talking with you. Uh, the best place to find out stuff about me is my website. It's CarlericFisher.com. I know there's different ways of spelling that, but if you Google it, it'll come up. Uh, and we'll,
1: we'll put a link in our show notes oh, as well. Awesome.
2: Thank you. Um, and I, I've got information about my book. It's called The Urge, Our History of Addiction. It comes out January twenty five. And I've got plenty of links and information there. And while we're on this podcast, I should mention I also have a podcast uh, about about addiction and recovery. It's called Flourishing Out of Addiction. So if you like if you like this one, go check out that one. And um, it's really nice to meet you. I really appreciate your your kind words and your thoughtful questions about this subject that matters so much to me.